Our last speaker is an associate professor of history and international affairs at the George Washington University. He received his PhD from Harvard and served as a visiting professor of Japanese studies there in 2006. A native of China, he has specialized in the history of Japan, including the Japanese Empire, World War II in East Asia, and technological developments in modern Japan. Dr. Yang is a founder and co-director of Memory and Reconciliation in the Asia-Pacific, a program at George Washington University which currently focuses on post-war China-Japan reconciliation. He's the author or editor of too many works to mention at this hour. Frederick Dickinson, professor of Japanese history at the University of Pennsylvania, describes Dr. Yang as, quote, a consummate historian of modern Japan. Dr. Yang, in Professor Dickinson's view, sees Japan's early struggle for influence on the continent as having elements of great power competition against the strategic battleground of China. In one of his works, Professor Yang notes that historians' views are affected by the times in which they live. To this end, he reminds us of the remarks by Benedetto Croce. Pronounce that correctly? I'm easier with Japanese. The Italian politician and philosopher who worked during the period in which we're discussing. And he cites, see the professor cites approvingly Croce's remark that past events become known when they reverberate in the historian's mind. We have high hopes that your comments will reverberate in our minds. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Yang. Good afternoon. Um, thank you, Mr. Um, Levy, for your kind introduction, and thank Dr. Herman for inviting me. And I apologize for being absent from the panel for most of the day. Um, it's my first day of uh, class at George Washington University. I also had a faculty meeting in the morning, so I mostly sit in the back. Um, instead of talking about World War II as a military diplomatic event, uh, or its origins, I'm taking uh, the audience here to the early post-war, partly because in terms of studies of World War II, one of the recent trends is to look at how the war ended. And here we're not only talking about the decisions of the Japanese to surrender or the American decision to drop the atomic bomb. In fact, the early post-war period um, is becoming a uh, thriving field of research. For example, my colleague Ron Spector has published a book on how the Japanese empire collapsed and the chaos it created. And also my colleague uh, have elsewhere published on the Japanese uh, repatriation, millions of Japanese from overseas, both military and civilians. In fact, just last year, uh, one of those sites, uh, Maitsuru, this port in Japan, has become registered in the UNESCO kind of memory list uh, as a World uh, Heritage Site. Uh, and then we also talk, uh, can see the post-World War military tribunals uh, in Asia, not just Tokyo, but also so-called B and C class trials that become another area of research often in collaboration with scholars in Europe who look at the Nuremberg and other trials. Um, I'm following Dr. Herman's uh, suggestion of looking at the hidden history and ask ourselves what remained relatively hidden despite this outpouring of recent scholarship. And one of these areas, I would argue, is those Japanese who did not come home immediately, who did not go on trial or uh, enter the POW camps in Siberia. So today I'm going to take you to look at the early post-war Japanese technical experts who remain in China and work with both nationalists and the communists and what implications such episode of hidden history have. So let me present this first quotation uh, from a Japanese businessman I'm assuming nobody has heard of, but he was the right-hand man of the founder of the great Toyota enterprise, although at this time the Toyota was primarily in textile machinery before becoming 
the automobile uh, giant. So trust is needed when you make of use Japanese. When they are trusted, the Japanese people work with devotion, even at the risk of their lives. This is their character. Now, these words are not taken from a book on Japanese culture, but were addressed to the Chinese nationalist government in late 1945 by Mr. Nishikawa, the Japanese businessman, Toyota's general manager in China. These were truly remarkable words when one considered the fact that such a call for trust between the Chinese and Japanese people were made so short after a long and bloody war that you have heard from the distinguished speakers. What, where millions of Chinese as well as Japanese have lost their lives, so it might be premature to might be tempted to just dismiss these words as simple wishful thinking on the part of one Japanese person. At the same time, as I will try to show in the next uh, 30, 40 minutes, uh, Nishikawa was certainly far from being alone. In fact, he was one of the tens of thousands of other Japanese technical experts who actually spent their early post-war in China to provide expertise in the hope, many of them anyway, of fostering China-Japan trust and reconciliation. So in the same letter addressed to uh, TV Song, or um, Song Ziwen, the Chinese premier, he went on to say that it is unfortunate that China and Japan had resorted to war. But since war has ended this way, we're now uh, neighborly friends. However, Japan has benefited from the elder senpai. China has developed itself by learning the culture and Buddhism, moral teachings, and business from China. From now, since the war ended, we must consider ways of repaying this debt of gratitude. What we are capable of doing is to serve China and its people through technology. Um, so what went behind this? Uh, I came back from Tokyo two days ago, and it's very fortuitous. Just uh, six days ago, the Foreign Ministry Archive released a new batch of documents, and one of the uh, most intriguing documents pertains to the gentleman on the right, uh, Mr. Horiuchi Tateki, who was the Japanese minister, a career diplomat, a long China hand, and he played a very crucial role in uh, facilitating such technical cooperation between Japanese and Chinese immediately after the war. Um, and on his right, uh, on his right um, is uh, TV Song or Song Zuwen, as it, we know in Chinese, who was an American-educated uh, Chinese politician, um, brother-in-law to Chiang Kai-shek, um, and a very key figure, especially in the economic recovery of China after this long and devastating war. So I'm, I'm trying to share uh, with you the documents that has just been released literally six days ago. Uh, this is one of the reports issued by the foreign ministry about Mr. Horiuchi's activity in Shanghai, where he chose to stay even at the risk of losing his entitlement as a diplomat of Japan, because after Japanese surrender, um, it was no longer entitled to maintain foreign embassies and legations, uh, even communication uh, under the U.S. occupation authority. So there were various reports through those Japanese ha that have been repatriated to Japan. And uh, here we know that uh, Mr. Horiuchi, who um, chose to stay in uh, China, but spent a lot of time in Shanghai because Mr. Um, Song Ziwen, uh, TV Song, spent most of his time there, um, persuaded the Chinese uh, politician, whom he already knew from the pre-war years, that the Japanese assistance is crucial for China's economic recovery, especially in the textile sector. 
the light industry, where the, I think we already mentioned uh, earlier this morning that after World War One, Japanese textile industry moved massively to China to take advantage of the cheaper labor and the market. Um, so these textile mills were taken over by the Chinese government. And in the midst of rampant inflation after the end of World War II, to produce cheap uh, consumer goods was key to keeping this inflation down. And uh, as far as we know, um, the Chinese were very interested. And this is the second page of this document that talks about the Chinese reaction, uh, both to uh, Mr. Horiuchi and his uh, colleagues from the Japanese embassy, as well as to uh, Mr. Uh, Nishikawa and his um, Toyota technicians. Uh, they were given personal automobiles. They were given uh, food supply, housing, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now, not everybody in China was happy about this. Um, there were Chinese who, uh, a union who protested the uh, hiring of uh, keeping these uh, so-called enemy country engineers and giving them a relatively uh, kind of high status. Uh, but this is far from being isolated uh, instance. And this is a little bit small, but this is based on archive um, from the number two National Archive in China, that is the archive where the Republican period documents are deposited. This is based on a defense ministry survey in 1946, and it actually is incomplete, but it covers different parts of China. And it also breaks down into different industries. Uh, so we can see um, Shanghai was certainly not the only place where you have such a concentration of Japanese technical experts. In fact, Northeast China, or formerly uh, Manchukuo area, where Japan has poured in tons of money and manpower to develop and industrialize, had the largest number of Japanese technical experts there. Uh, they work in all kinds of fields, uh, but railway, um, mining, factory, <coughs> healthcare, education, because many of the Japanese uh, had families with them and their school-age children need to be educated. So uh, non-technical personnel, such as teachers, also stayed. And the total number... Uh, uh, there's different estimates, uh, but it's safe to say that at least um, 20,000 um, or so, and this is an incomplete. Um, and it does not include those in the communist-controlled areas, because this is a time already the civil war was brewing in Manchuria. Uh, but I'll get to the communist area uh, just in a minute. So the Chinese reaction, uh, as I said earlier, was generally positive, at least at the official level, realizing that this is a large pool of technical expertise that China badly needed to recover the economy, to keep the factories running, uh, to keep the population fed. But the Chinese thinking actually went far beyond uh, with the Japanese technical experts already in China. And here are the uh, sample of documents in Taiwan's uh, uh, Academia Historica, the Guoshiguan, the kind of the equivalent to the National Archive, that indicated there were plans by different government departments in the nationalist government to actually recruit Japanese scientists and technical experts from Japan. The memo on the uh, closer to me is from uh, General Ho Ying Ching, who was a Japan-educated uh, top military official. He forwarded a memo to John Kashuk saying that, in fact, there were some Japanese who proposed uh, recruiting Japanese scientists, especially in the military industry, to China because now Japan is defeated. You don't need such 
military engineers, um, the country is being disarmed. And then what's even more intriguing is the memo on, on, the, on the left by a man named Wang Pengsheng, who again was a Japan-educated, probably China's top intelligence official. He also later worked in the Chinese uh, military mission in occupied Japan. Um, he also made a proposition of using certain Japanese as a middleman to go back to Japan and even spoke to speak with uh, then Japanese uh, Prime Minister um, uh, Shidehara uh, to recruit these Japanese and has to be done in a very, very secret way because of the international repercussions. So obviously, he doesn't want the American authorities to get a wind of this. Um, yet another plan, which is probably the most uh, daring, uh, uh, daring, is um, in early 1946, there were Japanese scientists who were affiliated with a Japanese uh, research institute in Shanghai who made the proposal, again, through secret channels to the Chinese government, to recruit nuclear scientists, including uh, uh, Yukawa Hideki, who later you know, won the first Nobel Prize for Japan in physics. Because again, um, they argue that uh, Japan had started research in nuclear physics with the end goal of making a nuclear bomb, but it failed. According to their reasoning, Japan didn't have the natural resources, uranium, etc. Whereas these Japanese scientists based in China, uh, in the so-called Shanghai uh, uh, Institute of Natural Sciences, have done a lot of geological surveys in China, and all they need is just a little bit push to discover the necessary minerals, and then with these Japanese top nuclear scientists in China, they could carry their research to the next stage. Needless to say, uh, none of these uh, wishful thinking uh, materialized, but that did not prevent uh, Chinese officials as late as end of 1947 to make suggestions of uh, recruiting uh, Japanese uh, scientists and engineers from Japan. Uh, this, there's one memo from a Lieutenant General uh, Lin Xuannan, who was based in the military uh, mission, Chinese military mission in Tokyo, who argued, I quote, although Japan is defeated, it has a rich legacy after absorbing foreign cultures and achieving modernizations since the Meiji Restoration. Um, they have sympathy for China, and he personally have close ties with them, and therefore, um, he thinks there is a possibility of bringing um, these people to China. Now, what is the geopolitics behind all this? It's not some random people coming up with crazy ideas. So, in fact, um, it turns out there were some grand thinking strategic thinking on the part of some Japanese top officials immediately after the Japanese surrender. Uh, on, on the left side, uh, the military man is General Okamura Yasuji, uh, the commander of the Japanese army in China. In late August, just weeks after Japanese surrender, uh, he conveyed a, a meeting in Nanjing, and uh, well, number one, he vehemently opposed to surrendering since he felt the Chinese, uh, the Japanese army in China had not been defeated. But he accepted the imperially sanctioned decision. Uh, so he realized that the best opportunity for retaining Japanese influence on the continent is not through military means, but through technology and economic means. So he says that Japan should contribute to future restoration of the empire and the reconstruction of East Asia by clearing up the misunderstanding between Japan and China, and to do so by helping strengthen China whenever possible. And this way, China has replaced Japan in the task 
of liberation of East Asia, and therefore Japan must assist China to become strong and prosperous. On August twenty-first, uh, uh, Okamura Yasuji uh, actually sent such a proposal to um, the Japanese consulate as well uh, in China as well as uh, the government in Tokyo. And Tokyo has a reception year because the um, one key official on the right-hand side is uh, the famous diplomat Shigemitsu Mamoru, who again had been stationed in China uh, in the pre-war years and served as foreign minister during World War II, and also has been a long-time advocate of the so-called Sino-Japanese cooperation. Um, so he readily... Um, came to the agreement to um, General Okamura Yasuji's idea and proposed that we shall carefully lay the groundwork by using every possible approach open to us. So it seems that sustaining Japanese influence on the continent through the Sino-Japanese cooperation at least briefly became one of Japan's objectives immediately after the war. But things get a little bit complicated here, because uh, what went on between General uh, Okamura Yasuji and uh, Mr. Shigemizu Mamoru in Tokyo has all been read by Americans uh, through the uh, interception and deciphering of <laughs> diplomatic messages. So in October 1945, the Pacific Strategic Intelligence Section of the Commander-in-Chief United States States Fleet and Chief Naval Operations issued a confidential study titled Sino-Japanese Relations, Japan's China Policy. It mentioned uh, these uh, policy points that I just outlined and uh, quoted from these secret Japanese correspondence and realized that these civilian technicians being kept in China has a serious geopolitical consequence. So in the late 1945, the Far Eastern Subcommittee of the State War Navy Coordination Committee proposed that the United States reiterate support for including Japanese civilians in repatriation. So I quote, it must be realized that any Japanese civilians remaining in China will be secretly striving for resurgence of Japanese power and influence in the Pacific area to the exclusion of Western powers will therefore directly jeopardize American interest in China. The danger is already apparent in the acquiescence by the Chinese government to the retention of Japanese technicians in positions which they held during the war. Um, another uh, US government uh, document from the State Department uh, to the embassy in China made it clear that it considers retention of Japanese, including technicians, highly undesirable and inconsistent with the U.S. policy of elimination of Japanese influence from China, including Formosa. So from here, we can understand the U.S. policy to uh, the staying on of the Japanese uh, technicians and other civilians was not very uh, forthcoming. Although on the Chinese government part, uh, they saw the benefit of uh, having such Japanese assistance. But at the same time, uh, the Chinese government had to accept the American concern and agree to the American general policy of repatriating the civilians. In the end, it was more or less a compromise, uh, something like 12 thousand Japanese were allowed to uh, stay on in China under close supervision by the Chinese government. Now, things like the American pressure alone did not explain the end of the Japanese technicians in China, because at this time, in 1947, the civil war was uh, raging and uh, 
many Japanese in、uh, Northeast China were caught in this civil war between the communists and the nationalists, and even in central part of China, they began to feel the impact of economic、uh, sort of downward spiral. And also on a personal level, they experience some、uh, unpleasant conditions,、uh, living as a defeated national、uh, in China.、Uh, some were subject to personal abuse.、Um, so even Mr. Horiuchi returned to Japan in 1948, although this is two years after the foreign ministry told him to come back. So he stayed on for another two years on his own capacity. But what about the conditions in the communist areas?、Um, the communists, those familiar with the Chinese Civil War in this period, would know that the Manchuria, the northeast part of China, which were occupied by the Soviets, was the first battleground、uh, where the Chinese communists battled、uh, the Japanese. So it is also there that they came into counter with、uh, the Japanese technicians.、Um, This is based on a Chinese、uh, People's Republic of China's Foreign Ministry archival material, based on a 1949 uh, survey. Uh, you can see they're confirmed and unconfirmed, so the statistics is is not、uh, watertight. But we can also see there are different areas where Japanese technical、uh, personnel were employed. Now here the definition has to be somewhat. Uh, broad because,、uh, in fact, they include not only engineers and scientists, but many were, in fact, what you call skilled workers or nurses, medical personnel. And、uh, unlike in the nationalist areas,、um, the Japanese、uh, in the service of the communist、uh, forces had to undergo ideological education and have taken on this burden of being suspected of engaging in、um, sort of counter-revolution activities. And one of those uh, top uh, geologists that I looked at, in fact, was thrown into prison after a mine accident. In which he was blamed for、uh, sabotaging sabotaging the,、uh, the the communist forces, but enough、uh, is evident to show that、uh, they played a also very important role, especially in two areas: in military medicine and also in、uh, mining, which provided the energy.、Uh, so, what you see here are from、uh, two publications. That came out of China about ten years ago. That shows the first is the reunion of Japanese medical personnel with the Fourth Field Army, which was、uh, a main force of the communists in the civil war in Manchuria. And then the bottom one is a so-called kind of reunion of those Japanese who serve as skilled workers. In one of those coal mines、um, in China, and there were Japanese who were sent to interior of China after 1949 for construction of railway, chemical plants. So, in the case of PRC,、um, the Japanese did not all go home until the 1950s. So, what does this story tell us about early post-war reconciliation? Um, this is one more picture,、uh, which is a very interesting story.、Um, on a personal level, this man was a Kwantung Army、um, aviation officer who surrendered to the wrong army. He intended to surrender to the nationalists, but ended up in the communists. And he accepted the offer、uh, for the safety of his men. In return, he trained the first batch of the PLA. Pilots, including the man who became the PLA's ace pilot in the Korean War and the, the commander、uh, of the、um, PLA、um, Air Force, and there too he had a reunion. So this reunion suggests, at least at these personal levels, that the ties formed during those early post-war years were carried on for decades. But this is getting more interesting from. 
the Chinese leader Zhou Enlai in 1955. He was meeting a group of French women activists visiting China, who complained it was difficult to work with the Germans. Well, we know after two world wars,、uh, working between German and French is anything but easy. And in reply,、um, in return,、um, Mr. Zhou Enlai had this to say that, you know, in the last hundred years,、uh, Japan was the country that bullied us the most. 1894, after the war,、um, Taiwan was taken away, and then Manchukuo was created in the 30s. A large area of China was occupied. Uh, millions of Chinese were killed, and people in China hated or were angry at Japan. But in the civil war launched by the Chiang Kai-shek, many Japanese stayed and helped us with medicine, with、uh, technical works, with production,、uh, and we trusted them. We believed in them. So, after seven or eight years. The Japanese changed from the people bullying us to being our friends, and still not convinced. The French、uh, woman activist said, "Can you really trust them?"、Um, then Joan Lai offered another piece of advice: "Is that well, it takes basically two.、Uh, Most Japanese can be trusted. The key is to change the Japanese attitude of bullying us, but also to change the Chinese attitude of being angry with them. And this way, the two countries can become friendly. Now, 60 years later, we look at the reconciliation process in Europe and Asia. We probably want to laugh at these words from the Chinese leader, or calling it just a you know a personal fantasy. At least it seems ironic because the Franco-German reconciliation is now being held as the gold standard, the model for others to follow. Whereas relation between Japan and China is sinking deeper and deeper, and to a large extent, the historical legacy of war、uh, and aggression seem to play part. But was it really a fantasy of Zhou Enlai without any basis in reality? I think for historians. What we can do is not to predict the future, obviously,、uh, to shed light on the past, especially the hidden past. Then can tell us that the course of history is not always predetermined. That is to say that Japan-China have difficult relations today due to history is not because there were not any possibilities in the early post-war period to. Reach out and make reconciliations with each other. In fact,、um, I have more to say about、um, other efforts on the part of Japan and China and and and、uh, Chiang Kai-shek、um, to create this early post-war reconciliation and also why it failed. But I think my story here is just to suggest this hidden history has something to tell us and think about different potential. Future courses of development.、Um, thank you very much. First question. Okay, uh, 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 Dr. Yang's presentation is really impressive, and、uh, I personally admire he and his group's effort to. Uh, have a bilateral kind of a, a, a group working together uh, uh, to facilitate reconciliation and、uh, have some positive memories about Sino-Japanese、uh, relations. Uh, but uh, I guess your group would have up here better if you believe that uh, uh, there is the re. Surgings of Chinese nationalism.、Uh, I was kind of horrified to watch mobs 
took to the streets, smashing Japanese model cars like a、uh, Toyota that I drove for my life. Uh, uh, in Shanghai or other major cities, after the conflict about Diaoyudao or Shinkaku Island, it didn't make sense to me. But the kind of a nationalistic sentiment was not rational to start with. And how, in this environment, that you would foresee your course going forward? That's a huge question.、Uh, thank you for posting.、Um, I will probably just limit my my goal. I think is to, as you say,、um, recover this hidden history, and instead of presenting the history of Japan China only as a history of conflict, and overlooking, however brief it is,、um, the history of cooperation.、Uh, Is a good start. Koshisan. Thank you very much. Very interesting presentation. I I have one、uh, question to you. Yes,、uh, I really agree the uh, uh, your uh, presentation, but、uh, I like to propose the other cases. Oh,、uh, how about the situation the、uh, Chinese or Taiwanese people after the war in Japan? How? Yeah, can can you find the, any cases、uh, to make any reconciliation among the people in the Chinese in Japanese, Chinese in Japan, and、uh, Taiwanese in Jap- Japan and Japanese? Because the, there were maybe ten、uh, thousand Chinese students or Malaysians、uh, in the in Japan in the war time. Yes, that's the first. Secondly, how do you see the situation between the、uh, Chinese? Uh, who joined the Wang Jingwei or Wang Jingwei government or Manchukuo, and KMT or CCP people? Actually,、uh, there was a strong、uh, strict trial towards the betrayed China,、uh, China who joined uh, the uh, Wang Jingwei government or Manchukuo, so-called Han Han Qian Zai and Fa Yuan. So, how do you see the such a situation? If You you only find the cases between the Japanese、uh, technicians in China only. How do you have the the new case?、Um, I think you're you're quite right that for every case of cooperation like the ones I described, there may be two, three, ten cases of continued animosity even at that time. Uh, my purpose is not to deny that there were、um, instances of conflict, uh, retribution, um, but what I'm trying to say that even leaders like Jiang Kai-shek or T.V. Song was not against the idea of working with Japanese and giving you know these experts a certain stat- respected status and seeing that as a start. Of a new relationship,、mm-hmm. where the two can benefit from each other.、Mm-hmm. Now, you actually know more than probably others、mm-hmm. about those、uh, Chinese and Taiwanese in Japan. Some of them went back to、uh, China. Some ended up in communist China, and some, quite a few of them, stayed in Japan.、Um, and the same with with Koreans as well.、Um, So the traders. This is an area where I think Professor Sheng is quite right that this current na- hypernationalist mood in China makes it very difficult、mm-hmm. to describe、uh, to、uh, do justice to the difficult situation where what we call the traders actually operated.、Uh, operated.、Uh, it's a far more complex situation. Than the black and white、uh, picture that we generally see currently、uh, in China. So, by and large, I would say in the official historiography,、uh, this subject is sort of off limits, shall we say. But in terms of uh, scholarly uh, research, um, I s- certainly see there's a sense to go beyond this, you know, black and white picture. Sure. 
It's ironic that the United States government uh, criticized or opposed this program of Chinese technicians um, or, or Japanese technicians in China, considering that uh, they had recruited German scientists who'd been high members of the Nazi party to work uh, in the United States. And there's a parallel between Hayashi Aichiro, who helped to develop the, uh, the, the mainland Chinese Air Force, and uh, Siegfried Kniemeyer, who was very instrumental in developing the jet uh, fighters in the United States. And he was also a, a pilot, a, a test pilot. Um, so I'm wondering, is there some basis for comparison uh, between the German scientists who came to the United States and the, 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 the Japanese um, technicians in, in China? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, in my published version of one of my uh, papers on the subject, I, I used uh, the scholarship by John Gamble, who has written on this subject. On, he even called this uh, intellectual reparation. So in addition to these uh, engineers and scientists, the Allies, United States, and Britain also took a lot of German designs, which today we would say, you know, patent rights and everything. Uh, so he used the term rather provocatively that it, it, it constituted a kind of reparation uh, to the victorious powers. So in this sense, indeed, um, even Mr. Nishikawa was aware, I would say that some other Japanese uh, were aware that as a defeated nation, Japan had to take the burden of paying reparations. And by offering the labor and expertise, this eventually could be taken into account when the balance sheet is drawn. And indeed, later, uh, Japan provided some kind of a technical assistance in Southeast Asian countries. Sir. Uh, my question is related to what uh, Professor Young has, uh, has submitted. He basically said that we should have, uh, in looking at China and Japan, there's a question of reconciliation and reconstruction. So I, I would refer to the current century uh, of General MacArthur, who very ably kept the Tenohaika Emperor of Japan as the figurehead, even though they surrendered unconditionally. MacArthur could have kicked him out, but he did not. He used the emperor to reconstruct Japan and reconcile the Japanese to the fact that they lost the war. Now, my question now is simply this. Uh, we have uh, Premier Shinto Abe coming to Pearl Harbor, going with President Obama, uh, go, saying, saying his prayer uh, uh, for the spirits of those who have been killed, the victims of Pearl Harbor. But in China, in Korea, in Malaya, Singapore, Indonesia, all those uh, places that were occupied by the Japanese during World War II, they have orphans, they have widows, they have babies, they have other people injured there. And they have comfort women in Korea, they have got people wounded in the war. Yet, Premier, Shinto Abe did not go to China, Nanking massacre. He did not go to China to say a prayer for the for the departed souls yeah, so and the is, victims. Is there a question coming from? My it? question is: Is there any spiritual or religious limitation for Shinto Abe not to go to China to say such prayer of reconciliation? such prayer of redemption and atonement. The Germans have atoned to the Jewish people. I think we have a question. So, so I, want, I want all of them, all of them, if they want to answer it. Is that a spiritual limitation for Shinto Abi not to go to these places to apologize? Thank you. It hurts. It hurts because we have got parents, ancestors who have been killed in the war. So we'll, we'll get to the answers then. <clears throat> Anyone choose to? I think uh, there's no uh, n n 
no uh, spiritual or religious limitation uh, for Japanese Prime Minister to go to the other China or Korea or other places to make a project or something. Yes, as you know, Prime Minister Koizumi went to the uh, Museum of, of uh, Marco Polo Bridge. Yeah, and to understand the uh, historical uh, situation and share and uh, uh, talk about the historical problem was uh, the Mr. Chan Zemin and share the uh, uh, some, some recognition of history. And also on the, on the process of reconciliation, I, I believe the uh, Japanese Prime Minister can uh, 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 realize or can uh, do uh, uh, what you said. Yes, I, I thought I did not think about the uh, many limitations on the uh, religious or spiritual limitation, I think. Thank you. Um, maybe. And then we'll uh, maybe take one more from my colleague and we'll wrap up because it's over time. I have a question for speaker about the motivations of those who stayed. Let me offer three hypotheses and you can knock them down or whatever. Uh, first, they stayed because they were altruistic. Second, they stayed because they knew it was the best thing for them to do. Third, uh, they stayed. Hey, I'm not even speaking of this. <laughs> it's as if I, I heard you. Um, uh, third, um, they stayed because I feel like we're Perry. I can't think of the third one. Department of Energy, I think, is the third one. <laughs> uh, perhaps the third one was that they simply uh, had no other place to go and they I know what it was and they felt their loyalty to Japan wasn't as deep as they had thought they it was when they were fighting the war so. um, thank you for raising this question I actually had it somewhere in, in the written version um, yeah I think you're right that there are mixed of motivations. Some were more motivated, especially the higher ups, by these somewhat abstract ideals, whether you call it altruistic or not. Uh, but a large majority had pragmatic considerations. Now, in the immediate or early post-war world uh, period, what was Japan? It's being occupied for the first time in history by foreign power, and the economic condition was bad being bombed, uh, whereas in China, especially if they were offered a relatively decent uh, pay, and even they were talking about sending money back to their relatives and family in Japan. So there is that kind of the uh, consideration. Um, some simply had no choice. Um, there were, I would say there were some uh, mild coercion uh, on, the, on, on the part of Chinese authorities in the sense that um, some people can go first, but on the condition that a few should stay behind. Um, and then in some cases, the one case I looked at, um, geologists, um, there was some deception. Um, he was promised to carry out a, like a fixed term project so that his family could be sent home to Japan if he stayed. And then when he got on the truck with other Japanese uh, scientists, it, it turned out to be not true, but interesting twist, according to his memoir, that he later became so impressed with the enthusiasm of the Chinese communists in rebuilding you know, their own country that he came on board and stayed for another two years. Um, so, but the motivation is, is a very, very interesting question. Uh, it's also a shifting one because later, situation in Japan didn't seem as dire as it appeared at first, whereas conditions in China were going down. So that also changed the mind of many Japanese who were, you know, in the kind of the, in the middle. Arthur? Yeah, I have so many questions. My, my mind is still reeling at the... Arthur, there's a microphone. Oh, sorry. My, I've, my, I have so many questions. And use the microphone, I use microphone, I know. The, uh, my mind is still reeling at the thought of Chang with a bomb. Uh, and Japanese nuclear scientists helping them to build something like that. That's, that's one of your what-ifs that really, we, we could be here all night. But two really quick questions. Number one is the photograph that you showed of the reunion of the Japanese workers at the Hegang uh, coal mine, a lot of them seemed to be women. It seemed to be a large, maybe more than half of them. 
And that I thought was quite striking. The second question I had for you is, from the point of view, is again, Japanese working in communist areas, to what degree Cho Enlai's remarks about reconciliation with the Japanese was perhaps a reflection of, Len of, of Mao as Lenin of the East and looking for openings for the spread of and development of a viable communist movement within Japan via with reconciliation as the vehicle. The post-war reconciliation is one of the vehicles for that. Thank you. Uh, the answer to the first question is, is fairly straightforward. Um, you see a lot of women, uh, not many because they are working, they were working in the mine, mainly because they were married to those men. So these are reunions where you bring families. Um, whereas in the top picture, you see a lot of female because there were many nurses uh, in the PLA, uh, the field army. The second question, uh, it's interesting, again, on the Joe, Joe and Lai's party, again, it's not some, you know, just this noble ideal of reconciliation. Of course, there is a kind of political agenda. But I've written in Japanese um, an article about the Chinese government inviting Japanese officers to China the following year, 1956, and the year after, to convince them that China had no desire of spreading communism to Japan. So their rationale is that if we invite the most right wing to come to China and open our barracks, we can convince Japan that it's okay to normalize diplomatic relations and break away from this Cold War isolation of China. So I think we're past our, our time by a considerable amount. Um, I want to thank all of the panelists on behalf of Arthur and myself for terrific presentations, including Dr. Payne, who's no longer with us, in absentia, Dr. Payne, uh, and especially our two colleagues who came from Japan just recently and are probably somewhere around the middle of the night right now and uh, are both uh, coherent and clear and also awake, which is, this is an amazing achievement. So thank you all very much, and I would like everyone to join me in thanking